0: Welcome to the Vintage Podcast. We have a very special one-off programme for you today. It's what happened when we managed to intercept world-famous economist and former finance minister of Greece, Yanis Varoufakis, on his whirlwind tour of Europe. We were very lucky to be able to talk to him about his new book, Adults in the Room, My Battle with Europe's Deep Establishment which really focuses on the extraordinary battle that he engaged in in 2015 between Greece and the European Union as they sought to renegotiate their debts. Giannis, thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, you really are on a whistle-stop tour. As you just said to me a couple of minutes ago, you live in aeroplanes. You've come from Ecuador and you're en route to Poland.
1: That is so. Uh, I've I've arrived uh, from Ecuador via Thessaloniki, Madrid, and Berlin, here in London.
0: Okay. And so this is not, as I know, all about just the publication of a book. This is your life. Your life is about spreading the message of global democracy, um, of economic reform, of European reform. Just tell us where you're at right now with that. Well, the book
1: is part of a campaign. Mm. It's another means to yes. the same end. And the objective is really very simple. If my analysis of what's going on is correct, we are on the verge of a postmodern 1930s across the Western world. And in exactly the same way that uh, I used to question my grandfather uh, back in the 60s, Grandad, what did you do in the 1930s to stop the slide into the abyss of that era? Um, I believe we are going to have to face similar questions in a decade or two from our kids and grandchildren. And it's important to have an answer to this. What have we done today to stop this... uh, um, inexorable process of fragmentation, of xenophobia, of racism, of loss of hope.
0: In the 30s, we saw that concentrated in the idea of people going to war to fight over territory, primarily begun, obviously, by Hitlerian expansionism. We don't see exactly that now, do we? We see a rather different sort of global economic situation. And um, And yet, across Europe, we are seeing the rise of the far right. In America, we're seeing an unbelievably polarised political system. What do you take from the 30s um, and feed into what you think we should do now, what we can do now?
1: I don't believe that the difference between now and the 30s is so much uh, the means by which war is being persecuted. It is a kind of war. Thankfully, we don't have bombs and explosions and mines. But I tell you that you know when I moved into the finance ministry in 2015 and I tell the story in the book, three days later, the president of the Eurogroup came to visit. And uh, from the word go, instead of the niceties that I was expecting, at least at the beginning, uh, he was brutally clear. Either I sign up to the terms of surrender presented to me by the creditors or the banks will be closed. Now, I grew up as a young person. In a dictatorship that was imposed upon us by means of the tanks. Well, you were, now it was—you were a
0: boy when that happened, wasn't you? I remember
1: yeah. it vividly. though. Mm-hmm. So that happened by means of the tanks. Well, now it was being persecuted by means of the banks. Uh, the difference is not that great in the end. Um, again, we have people that are condemned to um, complete misery. We have tens of thousands of suicides. Uh, people who simply can't make ends meet, Uh, they leave notes behind, Uh, I can't continue to be a burden on you folks, so mind the children, and then they shoot themselves. Uh, We have many such incidents in Greece today. And, of course, Greece is a very acute case. It's a canary in the mine. But the same lack of hope and hopelessness is spreading throughout Europe, even in the rich countries, places like Germany, if you look at the proportion of working poor in Germany, it has doubled in the last fifteen years at a time when the country has been doing so well, so we really have a lot to worry about but the great difference as I, and that 's a good difference with the 1930s is that the uh, the really rich people uh, the you know, what we used to call capital <laughs> amongst the left have not started doing what they began doing in the early 1930s, which is to fund the Nazis and the the fascists. So the Nazis and the fascists and the the bigots and the xenophobes are rising up because they are the natural product of deflationary forces, which we now have like we did in the 1930s. But thankfully, we don't have a situation where the really rich are funding those uh, brown shirts.
0: Because they don't feel ideologically committed to them or because they don't see what's in it for them.
1: No, it's because they don't have the left to worry about. In 1930, they, were, they worried about an organized left trade unions. The left was on, on the rise. Now the left is in disarray. So the result is that the bourgeoisie, the old bourgeoisie, are not funding the Nazis.
0: You used a very um, apposite phrase there, the canary in the mine. Of course, we don't usually hear the story from the perspective of the canary in the mind. And what adults in the room is, is basically that. I mean, the the sort of drama, as it were, is of telling that period um, around the time when you were finance minister and you had, as you say, that ultimatum and the way that you decided this was the time to blow that open, to be completely transparent about it. And you argue very forcefully in the book um, that what we need is that transparency and there can be no progress without it.
1: In the opening uh, pages, in the first few pages of the book, I tell the story of a discussion I had with Larry Summers, the former U.S. Treasury Secretary, who was just absolutely spot-on when, interestingly, we met because he, he, he became one of my advisors. He was on my side for reasons that had to do with his own understanding of geopolitics, even though ideologically... Larry and I are really on opposite sides of the fence. But nevertheless, we were like mates, talking about how we are going strategically to oppose the creditors, Greece's creditors. And at some point, at the end of our discussion, he said to me, Yanis, I need to ask you a question. Look, he said, uh, in typical Larry Summers fashion, in politics, there are two kinds of people. They are the outsiders. maintain contact with their electorate and they speak their mind and speak truth to power and feel good about it, but who get ejected by the system and they end up doing nothing. And there are the insiders, those who share information with other insiders, who are given an opportunity to make some marginal changes or some changes to the course of history, but they have to respect um, a simple rule. As an insider, you never turn against other insiders and you never tell the outsiders what has been happening on the inside. Mm. So which of the two are you? And I say, well, if I need to become an insider in order to help my people escape debtors' prison, I will do it. But I'm not going to do it just in order to be an insider. And the result that I'm speaking to you now means that in the end, of course... I became a whistleblower, and I maintained my allegiance to being on the outside. But this is the whole point about transparency. As long as we continue, you see, the crisis we have now is a crisis of insiders. The insiders created it, and now the insiders are crying foul when people like Donald Trump is uh, barging in. They are barging in, and they are, they resemble the you know the, the young person who's killed their parents and then pleads in court for clemency on the basis that they're orphans.
0: So the insiders that you're talking about here are you primarily talking about the European bureaucrats or the leaders of leading EU nations?
1: I'm I'm talking about all sorts of power. <laughs> so uh, you're talking about a structure, it's, structural it's, it's power. It's happening in London, it's happening mm-hmm. in every power structure that there is. This difference between the demarcation between the insiders and outsiders.
0: You will um, know, of course, that uh, we are in this country preparing for a general election, but also in the last couple of days reeling from um, the apparent leak of an apparent conversation at the dinner between Theresa May and Jean-Claude Juncker, which just revealed something that we knew already, but it was as if it were just absolutely made flesh, this idea that... um, There are totally different opinions about how Brexit may be achieved and they are on an absolute collision course. Does this echo something that you've experienced in the European Union and your negotiations with it in the past, that essentially there are just people with utterly different conceptions, desires, um, power bases uh, and beliefs of what can happen?
1: I have been warning the British government uh, since the 23rd of June 2016 that this is what is going to take place. There's going to be a charade. There will be no negotiations. Brussels does not do negotiations. Uh, I want that, uh, and it's in the book as well, that uh, Theresa May is going to face a, c- a series of tactics coming from the other side. One is what I call the Swedish national anthem routine. So you go in there with proposals and so on, and, and, and all you end up facing is uh, blank stairs. Whether you've sung the Swedish National Anthem or put forward moderate proposals and uh, um, creative ideas, it's exactly the same thing. There will be the runaround. Uh, You talk to Juncker, says, oh, I can't uh, deal with this issue. You have to talk to Merkel. You talk to Merkel, she sends you to Bernier. You talk to Bernier, she sends you to Verhofstadt. Verhofstadt then eventually sends you back to Juncker. And this this merry-go-round. And this is there is a tendency in London to to, to interpret this as a sign of um, incompetence on the, on the part of the eu it's not it 's intentional it 's uh-huh. deliberate so that you don't know whom to speak to. Uh-huh. So there are variety of signs You see in my case, uh, the greatest tragedy was that and difficulty was that I was negotiating with creditors who did not want their money back. This is not an easy negotiation. Imagine negotiating with your banker to whom you owe money when your banker is not really interested in in having his money back. This is a nightmare. Uh, The only thing that uh, the EU wanted when they were negotiating with us was to overthrow us. They didn't want their money back. They didn't want a mutually advantageous uh, agreement. They wanted to overthrow us for reasons that had to do with their own power base within Brussels, within Berlin, within Paris.
0: So you were a pawn. You were collateral damage.
1: Yes, well of course. Certainly, we were collateral damage. And and the and Theresa May is going to face up to exactly the same situation. Uh, Europe will choose a mutually disadvantageous agreement or outcome every time. This is why I keep uh, writing articles and giving speeches here in Britain, recommending that. Okay, the people of Britain, for better or for worse, chose Brexit. They did not choose which Brexit. The whole point about Brexit, the way I read at least the Burkean argument in its favor, is to restore sovereignty to the House of Commons. Well, restore it. Have an election. Give a mandate to your MPs to discuss the future arrangements between the UK and the EU. uh, But leave it to the, the full term of the next parliament to debate this and then to come out with uh, a strategy, which then should be the base of negotiation, which means that you need six or seven years of negotiations, not the two years after Article 50. So the only strategy that could work is for Theresa May to avoid negotiations. And the way she could do this was by saying, okay, uh, we are filing, we're requesting a Norway-style EEA agreement, which Bernier, Juncker, Merkel could not deny her because it's off the shelf, it's, still, it's there, it exists. It, you wouldn't need to negotiate. You simply take it and you apply it. Very tiny marginal matters need to be negotiated. And that way you, you allow Merkel to, th- to throw the ball on the court of the next chancellor. And you give your parliament an opportunity to debate what kind of arrangements you want uh, in the long term and the British people an opportunity to have another say in the future about that. That would be a small C conservative, sensible, rational way of doing it. It will create uh, stability for business, stability for the British people. And for the EU citizens living here and the Brits living in the EU, it would be the optimal thing. But now we have a situation where neither Mrs. May nor the EU establishment are interested in a mutually beneficial agreement. So the EU does not deserve our confidence and nor does Mrs. May.
0: If we were to, uh, to attempt something like that? Do you get the sense that the situation in Europe, the political situation in Europe is moving so quickly? Um, And I'm speaking, obviously, particularly with the apparent rise of the far right and of populist parties and a popular support uh, for those parties. Um, That actually anything would be a very provisional argument. Do you think we're seeing the long term decline of the EU, in other words?
1: Oh, there's no doubt. The EU is fragmenting. But it's not just the EU. The, our um, uh, liberal democracies are fragmenting everywhere. Look at Britain. The Tories have been Ukipised. UKIP has no reason to exist because the Tory party has become UKIP now. They're all hard hard Brexiteers all mm-hmm. of a sudden. You know, It's just an Ovidian metamorphosis of astonishing speed. Um, look at Theresa May. She fought for it, campaigned. Yeah, not very boisterously, but she did for Remain. And look at her now. So, this is the, my greatest worry about the, the ultra right is that they don't need to win government to be in power. They can infect the existing parties, not only the center right, but also the center left. Think of President Hollande in France in a ridiculous bid to uh, outmaneuver the National Front about a year ago. He introduced in the National Assembly in France legislation that effectively denied. Uh, French citizens of Arab extraction, the you know, the, the French passport. Now, if the National Front were to do that, we would all be up in arms at the explicit racism of it, but the socialists did it in yes. order to compete. So, why does uh, Le Pen need to be in power, uh, in, in office, when uh, Hollande is pursuing her policies?
0: So, in a sense, what they've done is mobilised a certain kind of support and got the kind of establishment, traditional political parties running scared in that way. Um, I mean, I wonder how you think that we are going to counter this very scary form of nationalism that appears to be rising to prominence all over Europe.
1: Head on with radical humanism. Let me give you an example. There is no sense in offering racism light and xenophobia light to the working class in order to, to lure them away from full-blooded blood, xenophobia and racism. To say, oh, well, you know, we are not um, racist and, and we don't hate all the foreigners, but of course we need to restore our national sovereignty by creating strong borders and elect- electrified f- fences. I think we should go all out and say, Borders are an abomination. We do not want them. We believe in the free movement of people.
0: All borders.
1: Uh, all borders. Borders are a scar on the planet Earth. Uh, let's face it. Europe has been populating the rest of the, of the globe for a thousand years now. We've destroyed uh, Australia. We've destroyed uh, Latin America, at least the indigenous populations there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, we only introduced passports in during the Great War. The idea that uh, national sovereignty and democracy requires strong borders and, uh, you know, visas and uh, uh, onerous uh, processes for processing foreigners and so on, we will have to overcome this. What has happened is very simple. For a thousand years, the demographics were such that the Europeans were populating the rest of the world. Now the demographic has changed and the rest of the world is coming to Europe. Let's accept it. Let's work with this and let's turn this into a strength for our communities.
0: And this is how you also translate it into what I I know you you believe in as the future politically, the the progressive alliance, the idea of a European-wide and possibly global... I call it
1: a progressive international.
0: A progressive international.
1: Well, the nationalist international is with us. They love each other. They collaborate. Trump loves Le Pen. Le Pen Uh is in awe of Orban in Hungary. The policy liberal regime um, is all the rage in Washington, D.C., and the White House as we speak. Uh, They love all of them together in unison, Nigel Farage. They have a nationalist international. Only we, the progressives around the world, are in in tatters, in disarray, and um, we don't talk to one another. It's about time we go together.
0: Why? Why are we in disarray? Well,
1: I think the the, the, the kindest interpretation is that... um, good people always to disagree on everything and evil finds a way of converging. Uh, There's no doubt. If you look at bankers, bankers are internationalists. They have no sense of... uh, um, country they have no sense of uh, allegiance to their own place and their own communities they are completely internationalist what communists were meant to be <laughs> and instead we you have the left uh, being sectarian and uh, resembling the opening sequence of life of brian
0: <laughs> indeed it is and that's the left not just in this country oh, everywhere. It's everywhere. everywhere it's everywhere can we just uh, just Look at Greece for a second and, and Britain for a second. The, the legacy of um, the austerity agenda, I mean, you, it's not even a legacy. It's still going on. What is being done in Greece? What can be done in Greece to change things?
1: We have a Great Depression, which is getting greater by the day. We have, a, a, um, if you want, a quadruple bankruptcy. The state went bankrupt first, the banks followed, Uh, then because the deep establishment of Greece, of France, of Germany, of Brussels decided to cover up that bankruptcy by means of huge loans, the largest loans in human history, on conditions, conditions of harsh austerity that reduced the incomes of people. Then you had the third bankruptcy bankrupt families, and then, of course, you had bankrupt businesses because the bankrupt families could not afford to buy anything from the businesses. So you have this quadruple um, Mm -hmm. bankruptcy. And any attempt to overcome this quadruple bankruptcy by means of more loans and more austerity is just a crime against logic. And this crime against logic has been happening since 2010. Uh, there was a, a, a short window of an opportunity when we were elected in 2015. We went to the creditors saying, folks, this can't, can't continue. We're not going to accept any more of your loans until we have a debt restructure and some sensible policies by which to restructure private debts as well, to stop people from being evicted from their homes, especially when their homes cannot fetch any price Even if they're auctioned off by the bankers, it's just madness to throw them out on the street in order to have an auction that ends up with a no sale. Uh, So we, we brought to our creditors very sensible proposals behind closed doors. They acknowledged they were very sensible, but it was clear that their greatest nightmare was a mutually advantageous agreement with us. Uh, because they didn't care about their money. what All they cared about was the preservation of their own power. So if we were to sign a decent agreement with them, that would be good for them and good for us. Uh, that would be terrible for them, because then the Spaniards would get the, the ideas in their heads so that they could vote for a government like ours to oppose the creditors, and then the Irish would do the same, and the Portuguese and the Italians, and God forbid, from their perspective, the French might get ideas. And the greatest uh, fear of Berlin is France. Always has been, always will be. And so we had to be snuffed out, um, even if that meant that our creditors wouldn't get their money back. So in response to your question, what should happen? We should have done what we had agreed to do. The only reason why I accepted the finance ministry, and this is all in the book, was because we had agreed with Alexis Tsipras and the leadership of Syriza that we would say to them, do your worst. Shoot us. We are not signing this. And then they would have come to the party because it would have cost them a trillion euros if they hadn't. Unfortunately, Alexis Tsipras and my colleagues uh, in the end uh, capitulated. And the result is a perpetuation of the same Mm -hmm. cycle of debt, depression. Uh, So what should we do? What we tried to do in 2015. But now we have to do it even more forcefully than before and be united because the greatest enemy of the left It's not the right, it's not capital, it's not the bankers, it's not the Troika, it's not Schäuble and Merkel. The greatest enemy of the left is the left. The greatest enemy is disunity. Uh, What I fear more than anything else is not, you know, Lord whatever. Uh, My greatest fear, fear is somebody like Ramsay MacDonald.
0: Would you ever go back into politics directly like that? I never left politics. I know. That was a stupid I, question. i know. you see you I, I, I always
1: loved Tony Benn and I, I enjoyed when he said when he did not contest his seat in Parliament, he said, I, I'm not contesting my seat in Parliament to concentrate on politics. So this is what I'm doing. Would I ever stand again in yes, election? that's what I mean. If I had to. Okay. I believe in reluctant politicians. If you really want to, you should be disqualified immediately.
0: Tell us about what you think might happen here. What hope do we have? We're, we are... Four weeks out from a general election. Um, it's clear to everybody that even were Brexit to go as swimmingly as people are, some people are pretending it is, it's just going to take years and years and years, but nobody really believes it will go swimmingly. What do you think we should do now, and how do we institute some kind of change here?
1: Well, we still have a few weeks before the general election. It is essential that there is tactical voting. It is essential that the Labour Party sees some sense and do not um, put up candidates against progressives like Caroline Lucas in Brighton, Mm -hmm. like the SNP, and vice versa. The Greens should not stand against Labour in marginal seats. We should minimise Theresa May's uh, victory, and then immediately after that start building a progressive alliance, in conjunction with a progressive international that some of us are trying to build on the other side of the pond.
0: Is it not the case, though, that the Labour leadership, as it is currently constituted, has ruled out that progressive alliance in to, in, for now, You know, for this situation now?
1: It is qu- quite so, unfortunately, but so what? We have to pressurise them. We have to make it clear to them that it, 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 it is in their interest uh, to, to, to move away from this obstinacy.
0: Janice, yeah, no, so I'm not revealing anything that, that people haven't already seen about you, but you'd seem possessed of absolutely furious quantities of energy. Where does that all come from?
1: Um, I have no idea. My daughter keeps asking me this, uh, especially when it comes to what, he, what she calls verbal diarrhea, which annoys her no end. <laughs>
0: it seems it seems rather more sort of contained than that i would say rather more articulate That's because we have a microphone in
1: front of me <laughs> ask my daughter when when i'm not around
0: okay um to yeah, tomorrow you're going uh, to the south coast uh you're then going to poland on another part of your of your campaign mm-hmm. trail as it were your sort of global campaign great. trail That's great. and what are you doing there
1: uh, in Poland, our comrades, Team Twenty Five, because we have comrades everywhere in Europe, and that is um, very satisfying. We have a, transna- a genuinely transnational movement. We don't. We're not a confederacy. We do not have branches and some um, central organization. Uh, we are one organization, and we simply have members everywhere. Our members in Poland are um, uh, in operating under very difficult circumstances. We had. Uh, people being beaten up, um, abused, uh, especially our women comrades, uh, the wave of misogyny and racism permeating Polish society under the guise of this so-called illiberal democracy which is rising up in Eastern Europe. This is an appalling set of circumstances and um, we have to go there and support them.
0: Anis, thank you very, very much for for Taking a break and coming Thank to, you. And coming to Thank speeches. Thank you. It was a great pleasure.